Good morning, everyone. This is um, it's a special day in the life of our church. It's a special day for Redemption Castle Rock as we are about to launch next week. It's uh, personally, it's just a special day for Lauren and I. Um, almost two years ago, almost down to the day, Lauren and I packed up the U-Haul and we drove across the country and we moved out here to Parker, Colorado. And um, been married for six months. I'd just graduated from seminary, and to be honest, we weren't doing that great. Um, you know, I'd been looking for jobs during that time and had sent out hundreds of applications and had only heard back from a handful. And only, you know, the ones that I did hear back from were no's anyway, so I was just having a bunch of questions swirling about in my head of, you know, is this what God is? called me to do? Am I capable of doing this? I've got this wife that I now have to care for. Am I going to be able to provide for her? Just, you know, the human soul can only take so much rejection before it kind of starts to break down a little bit. And so I saw this church planning internship posting on the Gospel Coalition website. And so Mark and I talked a few times and we came out and visited just to kind of check out the church and uh, I, I remember Alabama was actually playing Georgia in the national championship game during our return flight home. So if that tells you how desperate we were, I was willing <laughs> to miss Alabama winning a national championship just to go and check out an internship on the other side of the country. Um, like, we, it, It's not because RP was the best option, it was because it was the only option. But, um, <laughs> If, if that came across me, I didn't mean for it to. Um, but yeah, we, we, we just needed a win. And so we left our family, left our friends, left everything that we knew and decided to give it a shot. And it was, without a doubt, the most reckless decision uh, that I've ever made. You know, We didn't know you guys. You guys didn't know us. Like It was, it was just an absolute recipe for disaster. But from day one, God and, and Redemption Parker has taken care of us. We, we didn't have a place to live lined up when we got here, so Paul and Nancy Brennan, they're an older couple, they don't even go to this church anymore, but they let us live in their home for two weeks while we figured everything out. And when we finally did find a place, you know, I think there were like 25 people and eight pickup trucks that showed up to unload this tiny little U-Haul. We were done in 15 minutes. Like it, <laughs> It was pretty easy, um, you know. I remember Kenton and Jamie Mattoon started doing the things that Kenton and Jamie Mattoon kind of do, just making you feel loved and, and welcomed. I'm pretty sure I ate more meals at their house in our first few weeks here than uh, I did at our own. And like, you guys had us over for dinner so much, we, we didn't buy groceries for a month. Like, you, you guys took care of us. And uh, I'm, I'm not just saying it because it's our last Sunday. I'm not just trying to butter you up, but... Redemption Parker really could not have been a better church home for us over the last two years. Um, I could give a million reasons why you uh, you never placed any unfair expectations on Lauren just for being a pastor's wife. You didn't try and get a two-for-one deal in hiring me. Um, you respected her time and, and her desires and the things that, that she wants to pursue, and um, I'll, I'll always be appreciative of that. Uh, for... For the most part, you never held my age against me. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> it, uh, it, it would have been very, very easy and, and probably even somewhat understandable for a church of mostly 30s and 40s with you know, young kids and just a, a church of families to kind of pass me off and be like, oh, that's, that's cute. You know, it's, he's trying, but uh, you, you were humble enough to let me pastor you. And you let me make mistakes and, and you let me grow. And so I, I do want to specifically thank you for that. You let me preach an unusually high number of times. Um, again, most churches don't have the patience to let young preachers get the reps that they need. Um, but you guys had a bigger vision, something bigger than just yourselves. You wanted to see other gospel-centered churches planted in our community and around the world. And so you, you gave me the reps that I needed. Um, and so Redemption Cast Rock's pulpit is going to be a lot stronger and much better served because of your commitment to raising up another generation of preachers. And so I want to thank you for that. Um, it's only the beginning. I mean, you're, you're sending us out with 25 of your absolute best people. Um, I, I'm pretty sure all of them serve on the worship team. So uh, Aaron, wherever you are, um, thank you for letting me basically take all of your musicians um, for uh, making that sacrifice for the gospel. Um, yeah, just RP has given us people and preparation and funding through the church uh, planting campaign. You've given us friendship, just, just so many blessings. Like Redemption Cash Rock is starting out on third base because of Redemption Parker. And uh, just, I, I, I really couldn't be more thankful. Um, and before getting to the sermon, I did just want to thank the elders of RP and, and their wives. Um, so Brad Dugas, uh, Brad is the most underrated and underrecognized person here at RP. So if you want to see somebody who is willing to get here early and stay late to serve, like you will not find somebody better than Brad. When it comes to pastoral ministry, Brad has a, a quiet wisdom and an unusual gift for knowing when to speak and when to be silent, which is something that I am trying to learn a lot from. Um, so he's, he's very, very good at that. If, if if you want to know what a lay elder in a church should look like, Brad Dugas is your model for it. And Sandy, his wife, just the friendship and the discipleship and the mentor that she has been to Lauren. Um, I know that our marriage is a lot better just because of that. And uh, just her, her gift and her passion for discipling women in the church is just going to have untold um, gifts and benefits. Um, and then for... Mark and Jen, um, I remember sitting in your backyard six months after we got here and just not seeing how we could keep going forward and uh, remember doing it again, you know, six months ago. Um, but yeah, your friendship and your encouragement has just been an absolute lifeline for us. And so if, if Lauren and I could be Mark and Jen in 20 years, I would shake your hand and take that deal right now. And so I know that they're not perfect, but if anyone has anything to say against them, you can find me outside afterwards. I will correct you with all, uh, yeah, rebuking and correcting and, yeah, and, and maybe some fists if need be. But, um, yeah, just before we got to studying our passage, I did, I did just want to say thank you. Um, Redemption Parker has been the perfect church home for us, um, more than we ever could have hoped for, and we're going to miss you guys. And we hope to be a good first church baby as we launch out 
next week and as we seek to have um, even more gospel-centered churches here in our area. So yeah, I just wanted to, to say that. So if you would, uh, we'll get into our text for this morning. If you would, go ahead and open with me to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be continuing our study of the book of Matthew, uh, studying the king and the kingdom. Last week we looked at uh, Jesus' temptation where he was taken out into the wilderness and tempted. And today we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Matthew 4, verse 8, verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he being Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So just a warning isn't the right word, just some housekeeping about the sermon. This sermon's going to be a little more testimonial than exegetical, you know, kind of working, you know, verse by verse. Um, one, I think that just kind of fits the spirit of, of today. This is just a, a great celebration. Um, but two, th- this is not a very complicated passage. You know, there are no, you know, arguments that we have to follow, nothing that we have to, to trace. There's no, like, big reveal. There's nothing in the languages, no kind of hidden little nugget that really makes this passage pop. Really, this, this passage is as straightforward as it gets. Jesus sees these men, and he calls them. He says, leave what you have, come and follow me. Like, that's it. It does not get any more straightforward than that. And so this sermon is really just going to be kind of my story of how I worked through Jesus's call to discipleship and to following him and, and hopefully some encouragements and directions for, for all of us as we try to obey this call and to be better disciples of Jesus. So I do remember when Jesus first said to me to come and follow me. I was a sophomore at the University of Alabama. I had Grown up in church every week, I had heard more sermons than most people probably do in their lifetimes. I had slept through more sermons than most people will probably ever hear in their lifetime. So I, I had heard the gospel. I, I knew it backwards and forwards. And I didn't have anything against Jesus. I didn't, you know, hate him. I wasn't against him or, or against his church or anything. I was just apathetic. I was like one of the millions of Southerners who just, it's what you do. It's what you know, your parents do, it's what your neighbors do, you just go on Tuesday and Wednesday and Friday and Sunday. You just go to church because that's what you do. But I, I didn't buy any of it, and, and I knew that. And I was a sophomore at college, and I got involved with the college ministry at our church, and I started listening to our college pastor starting to, to preach. His name was Chris Brooks, and Chris is a weird guy. Like, if, if there was a modern-day prophet, you know, one of those, like, John the Baptist types, you know, John, you know, eating the locusts and the wild honey and the camel's hair, like, Chris was kind of that kind of guy. Just, you'd never forget him. So he was weird, but that man could preach. And he preached in a way that I had never heard before because 
he preached in a way that showed Jesus and the gospel to be beautiful. Growing up, I, I know that I had heard the gospel, but just the way I understood it was just this set of rules or doctrines that were on a sheet of paper that you just have to, yeah, I, I sign my name to the bottom of that, and that's what makes you a Christian. And when I heard Chris preach about Jesus, I realized for the first time it's, the gospel isn't just some information on a page, but Jesus can actually change me. He can redeem me. He can take what was a broken, sinful, apathetic person, and through his life and death and resurrection, he can transform me into one of his sons, and he can use me in his kingdom. And, and, and I never heard that before. And I, it was intriguing. So I wasn't a, a believer yet, but I was hooked. So after listening to him for about a year or so, I go home for Christmas one year, and I think I've shared this story before, but I walk into my parents' kitchen, and there's one of those like Christian literature like ordering catalogs where you can just order a bunch of this, you know, a bunch of these Christian books. And uh, t- to this day, I have absolutely no idea why I decided to do it, but I saw this 10-volume set of Charles Spurgeon sermons. And, you know, it's probably... Eight to 10,000 pages worth of some guy who lived in England a hundred years ago. I don't know why I did it, but I said, yeah, that would make a really, really cool Christmas gift. I said, I circled it and said, that's what I want. And man, I devoured those things. I would say that if Chris showed me the beauty of the gospel, that Spurgeon showed me the power of the gospel. When he preached, he preached like he knew that this book had a divine origin and a divine authority. He believed it. And, and he absolutely captured my heart. So I, I was absolutely the weirdest kid in Tuscaloosa. I was going to the library late on Friday night just to read old dead guy sermons. And so I call this my purple couch moment. But one night as a sophomore, I was sitting on a, a truly sinfully ugly purple couch in my dorm room. I was reading a Spurgeon sermon on Ephesians 2. I was reading that I was dead in my sins and trespasses, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air that is at work in the sons of disobedience. But God, by grace, through faith, has raised me up, has breathed life into me, has brought me to life, and has seated me in the heavenly places with Jesus. It had taken months, it had taken living preachers, it had taken dead preachers, it had taken a church, but Jesus said, come and follow me. So I remember getting down on my knees and I confessed faith. And it would be easy to romanticize my Christian life and Christian journey since then, um, you know, to say everything that's gone well and has been rosy, but that is absolutely not the case. Um, I've definitely cried a lot more since I became a Christian. My my life got a lot harder. And just, I I do want us to notice that about this passage, that when Jesus calls you to follow him, he is calling you to give up everything else. He he told these disciples, give up your job. (laughs) Give up your livelihood and how you provide for your family. Leave your father. Give up your family. Give up everything that you know and come and follow me. 
And the reason why I want us to see this is because I think we often misrepresent Christian life after conversion. I think we often think that if I give my life to Jesus, my life is going to get better. My marriage is going to improve. I'm going to start moving up the ranks at work. Like everything's just going to kind of come together. Like Jesus is just going to be that glue that brings everything together that I need. Actually reminds me of the story of uh, anybody heard of Rosaria Butterfield? Okay. Yeah, great. Um, So she was uh, a lesbian and she was a professor of literature at Syracuse University. And so she taught queer theory and and feminist studies. And she had just a a really, really strong, tight community. And uh, she's got a really cool conversion story. Don't have time to go into it. But she says that once she came to Jesus, that her life was a train wreck. She lost her partner. She lost her tenure teaching. She lost all of her community. She had nothing. Like her life did not get better in a worldly sense because she came to Jesus. She had to give up everything. But it was worth it because Jesus is better. And so believe it or not, Jesus actually asked every single uh, potential disciple to count the cost before committing to follow him. In Luke 24, Jesus says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, and all who see it begin to mock him. So, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not interested in a half-hearted or an ignorant yes. Jesus is very upfront about his terms. In this life, you will have suffering. You are signing up for that up front. It's like German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so being a disciple of Jesus is not all sunshine and roses and dandelions. It is a life of sacrifice and pain and suffering. But it is also a life of meaning and purpose, and joy, because it is a life with Jesus, and it's better. And so very soon after calling me to himself in salvation, I also felt the Lord call me into the ministry. I had a, a Jeremiah-like passion, that, that, that fire shut up in my bones, desire to preach the word. God gave me a love for the church, a desire to love and to serve his people, and like most people that God calls into ministry, I said, no. <laughs> Not doing it. I had a, a Jonah-like experience. God called me to go this way, and I ran as hard as I could the exact other way. And, and I came up with all the excuses that I could. Like, I'm, I'm not smart enough to do that, you know, except for those snakes on TV. Like, pastors don't really make a lot of money. There's not any stability in that, um, you know. Medicine is my family's profession. Like, we've got a pediatrician, optometrist, two pharmacists, and six nurses. We could open a hospital tomorrow. Like, I should go into medicine, right? Like, what, I'm, I'm going to be left out of Thanksgiving conversations for the rest of my life. <laughs> well, yeah, which happens, but yeah, never mind that. Um, yeah, so, so, so when Jesus calls these men to leave everything they know, to, to leave their family... Like, I, I, I get that. And, and I do want to make a clarification because there is a difference between a call to salvation 
and a call to vocation. A call to salvation is given to everyone. And there is only one way to respond when Jesus calls you to come and to follow him, and that is with faith and obedience. But in addition to the call to salvation to some, God will give the call to vocation and to full-time ministry. And the reason why I want to make that distinction is because I do not want every single person in this room walking out thinking, I'm being disobedient if I'm not you know, going to go be a full-time missionary overseas or if I'm not going to pursue being a pastor. You know? Ephesians 4, which has been really helpful in our building our, our pastoral theology and our theology of the church, says that God has given you know, teachers and preachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So you guys do the real ministry. Like Mark and Brad and I, we just work behind the scenes equipping you because you guys are out on the front lines. We are kind of staying inside the four walls trying to equip you. So I don't want everyone to think that they are being called into vocational ministry. But I, th- I think at least one thing that this passage is doing is it's calling all of us to at least ask the question and to consider that as a possibility. Just a few chapters after this, in Matthew 9, Jesus is going to say that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So I think just one measure of the fruitfulness of a pastor or a missionary is how good are they at raising up other pastors and other missionaries. So so brothers and sisters, let's not forget that there are Billions of people around the world who do not know the name of Jesus. And and they have no hope of hearing the name of Jesus unless somebody is willing to give up everything to go and to tell them. And there are thousands of churches, some even in our area, who are not being faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And people are are being given a false comfort because they are hearing a false gospel. And just as much as we need people who are willing to go, we also need people who are willing to stay, people who are willing to stay, to come off the front lines of ministry, if you will, like you, and to work uh, inside of the, to do the work of the building and the protecting and the equipping of the church so we can have more healthy gospel-centered churches. So again, to be clear, there is a difference between the call of salvation and the call of vocation, but scripture is clear that God is looking for more people to consider this kind of work. And so I would simply ask that every single person in this room will read this passage and read it again and read it again and read it again. Consider the worthiness of Christ. Consider your own life. Consider the desperate need of the world and the desperate need of the churches. Read this passage again and then pray a lot. And then that you would just humbly lay your life down, just lay a blank check down at the foot of the Lord and say, Lord, do what you will. And so if any part of you uh, would consider that, if there is any part of you that has that Jeremiah-like fire shut up in your bones, or if you stay awake at night thinking about the unreached, or if you just see this, this great pain in the world and in the church that lines up with one of your passions, like... Come talk to me, come talk to Mark and Jen, you know, talk to the fees that they've been missionaries overseas. We would love to help steward you through that. So to everyone in a salvation sense and to some in a vocation sense, Jesus says to come and to follow me.
And I'll close with this, that when Jesus tells us to come and to follow him, we have to remember where he's going. If you'll remember last week as Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness during the third temptation, Satan tried to offer Jesus all authority, all glory, all the kingdoms, and he tried to do it right then on Satan's own terms, apart from the will of Jesus' father. Satan tried to offer Jesus the crown without the cross. And if you want to see Jesus spit venom, try and talk him out of the cross. That's where he's going to say, get behind me, Satan. For it is my will to do the will of my father, which was to go to the cross. The cross was Jesus' destination before he ever called his first disciple. Again, Jesus is very clear about that up front. Signing up with Jesus is a one-way ticket to the cross. You are signing up for pain and for suffering. But on the other side of the cross is resurrection. On the other side of the cross is redemption. On the other side of the cross is glory. A glory so overwhelming and so satisfying that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing. It will not be a drop in the bucket. Brothers and sisters, I've said this before. I don't want to get, I don't know how long I have on this earth. Say I live to be 70. I don't want to get to be 70 years old and have a lot left in the tank. I don't want to, you know, sprint across with a smile on my face looking good. I want to crawl across the finish line because I gave it everything. I want the gas tank to be on empty. Because Jesus is deserving of everything that we've got. Our entire lives, our money, our job, our family, our desires, our hopes, our dreams, all of it deserves to be laid at the feet of Jesus. I love how one pastor said it. He said, if you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard. Your risks will be high. Your losses will be great. And your joy will will be full. So consider this passage. Consider what Jesus might be calling to you and then lay the the blank check down before the Lord and say, do what you will. If you would, pray with me. Jesus, you are deserving of everything. So, God, I ask that you would wean us off our lesser pleasures, wean us off our comforts, our securities, our worldly desires. God, would you be more desirable to us than anything that this world has to offer? God, I pray this for... Myself, I pray for Redemption Castle Rock. I pray for Redemption Parker. God, by your spirit, would you equip us to go all out, to hold nothing back, to give everything that we have for the sake of the gospel and for your kingdom. God, we, we want to glorify you. We want to see people come to know you. We want to see people grow in you. And so we lay our lives down at your feet and we ask that you would do with us what you will for your kingdom and for your glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.